0: Let's all mobilize. Let's all be on the right side of history. Make the moral choice between love versus
1: hate. Let's do the right thing. You know I had to get that in there. From Chicago, this is The Unenthusiastic Critic, a podcast about destroying your marriage one movie at a time. Okay. Are you recording? We are recording. Okay.
0: (laughs) I don't like this. Okay. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Unenthusiastic Critic. I'm Nakia, The Unenthusiastic Critic. With me today, my Queenie, my lovely husband, Michael, also known as The Unaffiliated Critic. (laughs) On this week's episode, Michael and I are sitting down for his first viewing of Spike Lee's Crooklyn from 1994.
1: This is nice. I like this this switching of roles thing. I'm super
0: uncomfortable. I have to do less work. I don't like being the the first voice that people hear.
1: (laughs) So for the people out there who are confused, we need to clarify: (laughs) we are switching seats this Mm -hmm. week. Usually, it's me forcing a movie on you that you have never seen. Yeah. And this week, we are mixing it up. Sure. It is your turn to introduce me to a beloved classic of your choosing mm-hmm. that I have never seen.
0: Well, and let's be honest that this was triggered because it was Black History Month. And so yeah, we
1: got to do all kinds of disclaimers.
0: Throwing me a bone here. here so.
1: <laughs> so this was supposed to be our last podcast of Black History Month, yes. which is, of course, February, which, of course, we are not in any we longer. are not
0: though we could argue that you know it's always black history month
1: <laughs> or should be should be uh but i had flu especially for, this
0: past black history month it was shitty yeah, no, so was we a, need was a do but okay go ahead. This,
1: this was a black history month that ended with green book winning best picture so uh yeah so i had the flu for about two weeks and that put us off schedule a little bit so we actually missed last week's episode right this was, as I just mentioned, also supposed to be our Oscar mm-hmm. week episode, and I think you picked Crooklyn in part.
0: Because Spike Lee was nominated. Because Spike Lee yes. was
1: nominated for the first time in his career yeah. for Best Director, mm-hmm. um, which he did not he win. He did not win, no. <laughs> so that's that's how we ended up where we are yes. today. Yes, yes. Is, is there anything we wanted to say about the Oscars before we... <laughs>
0: um uh, what do we want to say about the oscars i mean we had some pretty great wins it
1: started out a really good night we were on a
0: good street there was a
1: good roll there
0: and i think they were basically like let's give all the black folks their stuff now up front and recognize that you will not be getting the big prize (laughs) at the end of the evening so
1: because you had your your costume and your production design wins for black panther yes we had regina king win which was
0: phenomenal. Um, we can count Mahershala we can count even, though, even though
1: the movie is a problem
0: uh, and Spike won for um, Adapted Screenplay Spike
1: did win for Screenplay yes
0: so that was a that was a huge win which, for him which
1: again is his first Oscar which yes. is ridiculous it was
0: but he took that moment which I fully appreciate he was like I'm about to be up here uh-huh. and let y'all know how I feel about everything so <laughs> yes
1: uh, yeah but then the evening kind of went off the rails yeah
0: then you know the Oscars went to Oscar yeah and we ended with Green Book winning Best Picture. And in their speech, I don't believe they even acknowledge the creator of the actual Green Book?
1: Uh, No, nor do I believe they thanked Dr. Shirley himself. No, they did not. Yeah, so Mm -hmm. that was just about perfect assholery on their part.
0: That's going to be another crash, another Driving Miss Daisy. daisy. Yeah,
1: Yeah, we don't need to probably spend a lot of time on that. No. I will say that I think the last time we talked about this, I had not yet seen Green Book. Mm -hmm. I have now, and my opinion about the travesty of it winning anything has not changed.
0: Yeah. I did not see it. Seeing and I it was, was
1: just confirmation that it was completely comfortable was. in my
0: knowledge that it was trash. So. And
1: apart from everything else, apart from it being, you know, racism made palliative for white people, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, it's just not an exceptional movie yeah. in any way. Yeah. It's just a really mediocre movie across the board. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I don't know if, you know, Putin put money in. Into the the Green Book campaign, I don't know how that you know, happened. This is
0: Russian interference, sure, you think something you just tampering with all our shit at this point. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> all right. Anyway, but so yes, I pick, I chose Crooklyn because one is probably one of my favorite Spike Lee films. And then, too, like we said, there was the connection with the Oscars, um, with Spike Lee being nominated, but also Ruthie Carter was the costume designer for Crooklyn, and she won this year for mm-hmm. Black Panther. Mm-hmm. Uh, Terrence Blanchard did the music for Crooklyn. I believe he was also nominated this year for uh, Black Klansman. So we, Spike is
1: loyal to his people. He's very
0: loyal to his people, and th- it's just a g- group of really talented folks who have sort of been all over film, particularly film, like, in my life with Ruthie Carter. Her resume is just peak Black history. Like it's ridiculous. Like School Days. I'm gonna get you, sucker. She did do the right thing. She did House X. Party. Do she did Malcolm X. She did Jungle Fever. She did Money Train. She did Baps. She did Rose. So her um, Uber is, is 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 like all over the sort of filmic history, the, the sort of contemporary filmic history for for Black folks. So I've been a huge fan of hers for a very long time, and this award was very overdue. But I'm so happy that she got it. And was able to sort of have her her moment of shine. I think Terrence Blanchard has been nominated a few times as well, if I'm not mistaken. So yeah, these are all people that, you know, are brilliant within their space. And help to sort of create the atmosphere for these films that make them sort of so powerful and Mm -hmm. make them stay with you for so long. So yeah, I thought, why not?
1: So why this particular Spike Lee movie?
0: Cricklin was a little bit different for Spike, he had done She's Gotta Have It, School Days, Do the Right Thing, Mo' Better Blues, Jungle Fever, Malcolm X, and then we got... Crooklyn was a little bit of a, of a, a different energy for him. Is um, that the order?
1: Because I think I've seen all of the, all of the, the other ones before. So Gro- Crooklyn was the first one of his movies that I didn't see. That you see. didn't see.
0: Interesting. Yeah. So, and I think it probably was a surprise for a lot of people... Who were used to a certain type of Spike Lee film? Like, you, you thought you were going to be getting Malcolm X, you thought you were going to be getting. That's the what right I was thinking.
1: I mean, it's. I'm trying to remember if I knew it was a Spike Lee movie or if it was one of those movies that I didn't make that association hmm. when it came I out. I mean, it's
0: very Spike.
1: But it seems like an outlier. I mean, just Spike Lee and Children just <laughs> seems like an odd mix right from the start. <laughs>
0: It was definitely a little bit different for him. It's a, it is basically, you know, the story of a family growing up in Bed Stuy mm-hmm. um, in 1973, and it's very sort of warm and calm in a way that a lot of his films aren't. Like mm-hmm. there, a lot of his films are sort of undergirded with this very like kinetic energy, this tension of just sort of different folks being in contact with each other, right. And Crooklyn... I mean, there are sort of moments like that, but it isn't the sort of total energy of the film. And yeah, and then you had this group of kids who were mostly, I believe, unknowns and just were were able to just do and be kids. And I think when he was casting for it, he said specifically that he didn't like professional child actors because they weren't natural. And so he relied really heavily on school children in Brooklyn. Hmm. Um, So it really was just this like... I'm going to tell the story. It's semi-autobiographical of how he and his siblings grew up. Okay. It was co-written by his sister Joie and his brother Senkei Lee. And so yeah, it's it's sort of probably the the closest we've gotten to any sort of filmic insight into Spike Lee as a person. Hmm. But the narrative is centered around the girl child in the family, Troy, Troy the boy. And I think one of the things that I love so much about Crooklyn and why it sort of stuck with me for such a long time, because I think this was one of the first films, that at least I could remember, that focused on black girlhood and focused on it in a way that wasn't, it wasn't sort of black girlhood in the middle of this, like, pathology. Like right, sort of right. Thing, right. It was just, it was, it was just—it was like how black girls grew up. And
1: I was going to say, because literally the only other one I could think of off the top of my head is Eve's Bayou.
0: Yes, which is... Another just gorgeous film, and I love it. And um, there's also sort of later down the line, we get something like Pariah. Then we have sort of Beasts of the Southern Wild. So there have mm. been, you know, there definitely aren't a lot, <laughs> but there have been a few more that have just allowed black girls to be black girls. And that sort of representation, at least at the at the time that Crooklyn came out for me, was really very... Special. So you would have been
1: about 12 years old. I would have been about 12. But
0: I don't think I saw it in 94 when it came out. Um, I probably saw it maybe 15 or 16 when I saw Crooklyn for the first time. And... There were sort of so many moments in the film that resonated with me, um, even though I didn't grow up in Best even though I didn't grow up with a bunch of brothers. It was still um, this connection to Troy, and in particular, Troy's relationship with her mother, played by the brilliant Alfre Woodard.
1: I love Alfre Woodard. She's
0: amazing. So yeah, I just Crooklyn has sort of been with me for a very long time. So just a little bit of background info. Crooklyn stars Delroy Lindo and Alfred Woodard as um, the parents of five kids, one of whom is Troy, the only girl, played by Zelda Harris. Like I said, it's one of the sort of most explicitly autobiographical of Spike's films, and it just sort of documents the summer of 1973 of this, like, working-class family, right? And so it is just a portrait of a family at, at a point in time. It has an amazing cast. So I mentioned Alfred Woodard, who plays the mother. And she, as we said, is brilliant. Delroy Lindo plays the father. Um, He was also, I don't know if you remember it, um, West Indian Charlie in Malcolm X. Mm
1: -hmm. Like the
0: gambling kingpin who then sort of just deteriorates so he's in the film. I think he's actually really brilliant in Malcolm X. Isaiah Washington is in this film. Bokeem Woodbine is also in it. And RuPaul makes an appearance in Crooklyn as well. Oh, wow. Yes, very early RuPaul. (laughs) As you know, I'm a fan of soundtracks. It has a wonderful soundtrack of all the sort of hits of the 70s. I do also want to mention that Arthur Jaffa... Was the cinematographer on this film, um, and he's, again, another sort of part of that brilliant cohort of folks. He uh, did Daughters of the Dust, and he's also worked on a number of um, music videos and done photography on videos uh, for both Solange and Jay-Z. So, yeah, I think Crooklyn brings to bear sort of a lot of the gifts of this group of folks in service of the story of a, of a black girl growing up in Betsy.
1: Okay. I am looking forward to it.
0: Okay. For those who want to watch along, Crooklyn uh, is available on Amazon Prime, uh, Stars, and iTunes.
1: Okay. Let's go watch it.
0: Okay. Sorry, Gray. You sorry, why? Sorry, I called your mother a huh? hawk. And you sorry about teasing me about being left back three times, about being on welfare, about me and my brothers having three different fathers? I'm right, already. I said I was sorry.
1: This time, Spike Lee takes a whole new look at growing up in his old neighborhood. It's a TV. me raving back right somebody left the toilet seat up i almost fell in again shut oh,
0: up you flat chested wench i gotta eat this black eyed peas have calcium all the calcium
1: in the world ain't gonna make up for this nasty taste can i have some tricks no please ah. said no you idiot give it up you
0: No, know, daddy doesn't want to fight and yell all daddy wants to do is play his
1: music in a place called took to keep it together was a little love peace and soul Alfrey woodard delroy lindo and introducing zelda harris that's
0: what family's fun you gotta stick together
1: right right I'm everyday, crooklyn a spike lee joint
0: welcome back during the break we watched spike lee's crooklyn this film opened at number three at the box office, but I don't think it's a movie that many people think of when they think of um, a quote unquote typical Spike Lee joint. So, Michael, what did you think?
1: Well, what is a typical Spike Lee joint?
0: I think if you ask people to name Spike Lee movies, I don't know that Crooklyn would be like in the top 10, maybe.
1: Mm, probably not, no. You
0: know, they would say Do the Right Thing would probably be first, and then, you know, Mo Better Blues or Malcolm X and, mm. you know, 25th Hour, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, I don't know that.
1: It is a very different mm-hmm. Spike Lee film. Mm-hmm. I think I like it. You think you like I th- it. I think I like I mean, I enjoyed watching it, and I think I, I like it as a film. I need to think about it some more. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think probably my guess would be that it's dismissed as lighter Spike. Okay. And I'm not sure that's accurate. I mean, I think it's lighter in subject matter, but mm-hmm. I think it's deceptively simple. I think there's probably more going on there than first appears.
0: Sure. I mean, it's interesting when I hear people say, you know, this is a a quote-unquote lighter Spike film. Like, it, you know, it definitely doesn't have the sort of electric sort of big moment scenes like a Do the Right Thing or like a Malcolm X. Right. Um, but would we say that, say, for example, would we say something like Stand By Me is a lighter film? Like, is it considered lighter because we're I mean, focusing... it, it is. is, yeah. It, but I don't think people talk about Stand By Me that way. No? I think I don't think so. I think it's given, a, like, a weight and a reverence, even though it's about just, like, a group of young boys just on a summer, like, walking around and the sort of little adventures that they get into.
1: I suppose.
0: Whereas... And I don't know if it's because this is a a story that focuses on a girl, and particularly a black girl, that it then becomes, one, either hard, quote-unquote, hard for people to relate to, or it's seen as a sort of insubstantial narrative. If it isn't couched in, like, a precious sort of situation, right? Where it's like... (laughs) Her mom's on crack and she's having a baby and the girl can't read. And like if there isn't all of this other sort of, all these other sort of isms going on, if it's just about a black girl growing up in the summer and being a black girl, does it, is it somehow dismissed? Because I do think there's a sort of larger dynamic in a lot of culture where, you know, if I say this is a story about girlhood, you automatically think white. And if I say Mm. this is a story about blackness, you automatically think black male. Mm. And so the black girlhood story gets lost in there. And I I don't think that people necessarily approach it with the same sort of respect Mm -hmm. that they may do something like a stand by me or something, you know, something else. Mm. Or
1: like an eighth grade or something, you know, like I just think. Right. I mean, I think it's interesting because I think, for one thing, I think it's only a ways into Crooklyn that you realize it is Troy's story. Mm-hmm. I mean, in in the beginning, it's and this is one of the things that fascinates me about this movie, is that the point of view is very elusive mm-hmm. in this film. It's... It's not a very close point of view from anyone. Right. Um, it, It seems to be almost this sort of cinema verite, just sort of objective... Observational eye, Mm -hmm. just kind of watching this family and, you know, getting these little slice of life moments um, without any particular viewpoint on it. And yet, you do realize as you go through the film that it is very much Troy's story, uh, played by Zelda Harris. Zelda Harris. Mm -hmm. Um, She's the only. The only daughter in this family of yes. <laughs> rusty butt four, boys, I believe. Four brothers. Four that, brothers. Four brothers. Yes. Right. And really, she's the only one of the children. One of the ways you know it's her story is she's the only one that comes into any kind of focus at all. Mm-hmm. The other boys are just sort of rambunctious. And, boys. I mean, they yeah. have personalities, right. they have individual personalities, uh, but they're just sort of dicks. Yeah. <laughs> But the storytelling is very, very sort of just slice of life, anecdotal, Mm -hmm. These, you know.
0: Vignettes, sort of.
1: Barely even vignettes. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not, I I find it interesting, you you talked about that Spike wrote this with his- His sister and his his brother. His sister and his brother, Mm -hmm. right? And I I don't know that this is true, but that watching it, knowing that, I sort of had this- This image of them sitting down and being like, okay, what do you remember? Mm, And just like dumping out a list of things, moments from their childhood Mm -hmm. that they remembered. And then not really trying to shape that into a coherent narrative, which is what I like about the movie. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mold this big phony character arc. It doesn't milk moments for phony emotional weight right it's it is very much just this okay here are scenes from our childhood without a lot of interpretation without a lot of audience manipulation about what to think about them just kind of laying them out there which i like about it
0: yeah, no, and it's interesting that you say like this idea that they maybe just sat down and said, oh, remember when this happened? Or sort of remember when this happened? Because um, I think that's sort of how a lot of us reflect on childhood. Like, mm-hmm. we don't have necessarily this overarching, this is sort of what my childhood meant. Or this right. is sort of what was, you know, it, it is like, oh, you remember that time that, you know, mom did this? Or, or yeah. you remember that time that me and my brothers did this sort of thing? So I do like that about it because again, I think, again, it gets back to that 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 idea of, like, we're, we're watching a film. Through the point of view of children who one summer is just like every other summer, except that there are like maybe these little moments that happen throughout mm. that sort of stand out for you.
1: And stuff doesn't like in memory stuff does not link up no. in nice, neat narrative no. fashion. No, it all. just doesn't. Yeah, and I don't think it does in this movie. And I think that's it. It feels weirdly authentic in that way. Mm-hmm. And it does sort of make it this interesting balancing act between this kind of objective filmmaking that Spike is doing and what I think be- it becomes clear is a very subjective view of this from the memory of, of the children. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That, that that's what this movie is, is these subjective memories from the cho- the children's point of view. Right. Uh, particularly Troy.
0: Yeah. Who seems to have the most connection with the parents. Yes. I mean, we see Alfred Woodard, who plays Carolyn, the mother, and Delroy Lindo, who plays Woody, the father. We see them sort of interact as adults, and and usually those are sort of moments of tension because Delroy is a struggling musician who is, you know, deeply committed to doing what he calls sort of pure music. Unfortunately, pure music is not bringing any money into the house, (laughs) and Carolyn, who is working as a teacher and struggling to just sort of keep the family afloat and make ends meet, and so you, when we see them alone apart from the children, or when they are sort of disengaged as adults, it's almost sort of the only sort of internal character building, if we're going to call it that, that we get with them, really
1: yeah and actually I mean those those scenes kind of screw a little with my with my idea that everything is from the children right because
0: the children aren't memory. present for a couple of those
1: a little bit mm-hmm. so it kind of bothers me, and I sort of wish some of those scenes that are just the two of them alone, mm-hmm. just the parents alone were not there mm-hmm. on the other hand, that's probably making it too literal, like making my interpretation of it too literal right. And I think, you know, we, for example, don't get scenes of them being intimate together. Right. We don't get scenes of them being loving together, really, um, alone. Mm -hmm. What we get is arguments. Yeah. And these are arguments that whether they were in the room for those particular arguments or not, the children would have been aware of these tensions between their marriage. And I think that's why we get those scenes. Yeah. So it, it still is to me sort of that those are like overheard mm-hmm. arguments that they're having, whether mm-hmm. in the movie we see the children are there or not.
0: Yeah. Well, and we have that really sort of powerful moment towards the end of the film, after Carolyn has passed away, Troy wakes up sort of out of a fitful sleep. Mhm. And she hears noise. She what she thinks she hears is her mother and her father arguing. arguing yep. And so she's going down the stairs and she's like, "Mommy stop and Daddy stop and don't you know stop fighting." And she goes to the kitchen and she realizes it's just her father like trying to like catch a rat or something. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of the first moment where she breaks and realizes that, you know, her mother is gone and yep. she has her first sort of emotional reaction to that. But I think it does speak to that idea of like children are always aware when there is tension or anger in the home, and if they're, especially if there are like loud arguments, mm-hmm. and they may not hear the specifics of it. Like it almost sounds like Charlie Brown's parents sort of thing, but you know that it's anger, and right. you know, and yet you 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 sort of pick sides anyway, even though you aren't at all equipped to sort of discern sort of what's actually happening. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Um and so, in, with Crickland, I think because of the the way Spike has sort of chosen to represent the family dynamics, it ends up being that Carolyn is sort of painted as you know the villain and yeah, the father let's let's, is. let's
1: talk about that, yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, and it's funny because. I don't remember picking up on that really at all when I was, you know, the first few times that I have watched. And I don't remember the last time that I've seen *Crooklyn*, but it, it would—I don't know—I was maybe in my twenties. It may have been a while since I've seen it, but I don't remember watching and going, "Hmm, the gender politics of this is a little fucked
1: up." <laughs>
0: um, and it—and I don't know if that's because see,
1: it—you always talk about. I know, it, right? <laughs> when I go back and watch these movies and.
0: <laughs> I know we grow, it, we mature. Yes. Your we
1: view of them changes. Develop
0: lenses. You watching know? them through
1: someone else's eye changes them. It, it, really it becomes has. complicated.
0: But part of it is, and I still sort of felt this way even watching it now. It's like I know Carolyn is my mom. Mm-hmm. Like she just is, like it doesn't seem. And it's it's my mom. If you take like all of the you know sort of disciplinary moments and you just squash them all together, and there isn't any. But there are moments where Carolyn is very tender with Troy in particular. Yes. And very loving. And so you can reduce her character down to sort of disciplinarian, almost like emasculating, angry black woman. And then Woody gets to be, you know, the sort of laid back dad who sort of comes in and makes everything better. And he brings you sugar and mm-hmm. cake and candy. Right, right, and he's right. just trying to, you know, just trying to make his music. And if people could just give him the space to make his music and let me be a man, I could do that. So, you know, I didn't grow up with a father in the household. So that dynamic wasn't there. In my home, but she was very much the disciplinarian and the head of the household, mm-hmm. and like that was who she was. And so I didn't see it as I when I, I think when I watched this film, I didn't see it as like oh, you know, that's a problematic way to portray black women. It's like that's my mom.
1: I didn't I didn't take it that way either. Mm-hmm. And you you shared with me an article by Bell Hooks that mm-hmm. sort of had that that criticism of this film.
0: Yeah. So Bell Hooks had a really interesting essay from Z Magazine entitled On Death and Patriarchy in Crooklyn. And she gets in the shit, man. Like, she <laughs> excavates a bunch of stuff that I didn't even really think about. Um, but one of the sort of bigger takeaways is how Crooklyn almost does a disservice to Carolyn's character mm. in service to this sort of conservative patriarchal ideas about womanhood and gender roles and particularly black womanhood. And I'll just read a little bit of it. Crooklyn constructs a redemptive narrative for black life where the subjugation of the black female body is celebrated as that rite of passage which is restorative, which ensures family survival. Whether it is the grown woman's body erased in death or the little girl body erased by violent interruption of her girlhood, the sexist politics of this film often go unnoticed as viewers are riveted by the exploits of the male characters. In this way, audiences tacitly condone the patriarchal devaluation and erasure of rebellious black female subjectivity that this film depicts. Lee constructs an ahistorical narrative of the 1970s in which there is no meaningful convergence of black liberation and feminist politics. At the time, black women active in national black power groups were challenging sexism and insisting on a feminist agenda. And so in Carolyn's character... You did have this sort of bohemian, very intelligent, very sort of aware woman who was fully self-possessed and fully herself, working outside of the home, stressing the importance of education Mm -hmm. to her children. But then her death comes rather abruptly in the film. Yes. Like she gets sick really quickly. Like she's always tired sort of through the film, but it's almost it, like we th- when I, when we watch it, I think we think oh she's tired cuz she's a mom of five children and she's trying right. to do all the shit.
1: And then suddenly she's in the hospital right. and then suddenly, suddenly, suddenly she has cancer. Off and she's right.
0: And she dies off screen and then that is sort of the the trigger for Troy to sort of step in to be the mother figure mm-hmm. in the in the home, right? And so girlhood is over and now you've stepped into the role of your mother. Right. And the fact that when Troy goes to visit her in the hospital, sort of the, what we think, what we see is the last time that they see each other. Her mother's message to Troy was, you need to take care of your little brother yeah. because he's the youngest. It wasn't, you need to make sure you get an education and get a job and yep. take care of yourself. And so this idea that there are these sort of reductive sort of sexist narratives being superimposed on this character that was at least initially presented as this sort of radical feminist character almost felt like a betrayal. And I know, and I'm not saying it's right or wrong, I, don't buy, I just didn't I don't read buy it yet. that way, and and, and and so...
1: My reaction to that article, and obviously we'll link to this article in the show notes if yes. people want to read it, yes. but I mean, I think what Hooks describes mm-hmm. is accurate, mm-hmm. but I feel like she she presents it, basically she suggests that this is something that the film isn't aware that it's doing, mm-hmm. and that's where I don't, I don't agree. Mm-hmm. I think the film is very aware of that dynamic. I think it's... And again, it comes back to me to the subjectivity of the children, Mm -hmm. that this is how they remember it. Mm -hmm. And so the narrative in which the mother is this sort of killjoy figure... Yeah. Who's like constantly ending their fun right, and making right. them turn the television off and denying them treats and making them clean the house in the middle of the night? I love that scene where she just like <laughs> wakes like them up at four, a.m. beats them out yeah. of bed at four a.m. Again, because they my mother were supposed to have cleaned yeah. the house. That mm-hmm. um, that's how they remembered her. Mm-hmm. And the father, of course, he gets to be the good guy. Yeah. he's the one who gets to bring home cake and bring Mm -hmm. home lemonade with lots of sugar in it and is not a disciplinarian and he's the one who challenges the mother and says, nah, let him watch TV, you know, let him watch Soul Train or let him watch whatever. Again, that's how, that's the dynamic that was at work and that's how the children remember it. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a difference between how it's depicted and how we view it watching it Mm -hmm. as adults from a distance. I didn't feel at all that Alfred Horton's character was a monster. My sympathies were entirely oh, with absolutely, her, yeah. and Delroy Lindo Need was kind of a fucking together. deadbeat. Yeah, <laughs> like get off your ass and go get a job. <laughs> So I think that disconnect is intentional and mm-hmm. I think it's to me it's very powerful and it's very it's a lot of where the sort of generative tension of the film comes from mm-hmm. is the disconnect between what how, what we how we see things and how the children see
0: things. Mm-hmm. I mean I think part of it is I think hooks is also bringing an analysis of how Spike has sort of dealt with gender in films past well that's a whole other issue right yes so like she also wrote an essay about she's gotta have it yeah and uh, you've seen she's gotta have it right and so there was that whole scene where it was like quote-unquote consensual rape right as 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 punishment for this woman having ownership over her own body and her own sexuality terribly problematic. And so I think And that's
1: and that is far from the only problematic woman absolutely. in Spike Lee's movies. Right.
0: And so I think that that's, <laughs>
1: there's no doubt about. It. In fact, to me, Alfred Woodard's character is one of the best female characters mm. Spike Lee ever created.
0: But I think that that analysis is also informing her thoughts around because at that point you I think Spike then becomes Almost like an untrustworthy narrator sort of mm. thing, because Bike has proven himself to sort of lack nuance around issues of sort of feminism and sort of gender politics. So we talked a little about Alfre and and Delroy. What did you think of Zelda as Troy,
1: the actress, or just the the character?
0: Let's go with the character.
1: I mean, she. She doesn't have much of a character. Mm-hmm. I mean, she's she's not fully formed yet, which right. is sort of the point right. of the movie. She's got a temper.
0: Well, she's in the house of four boys. Yeah,
1: yeah. And I I think it's it's interesting. I think particularly, I mean, obviously Carolyn is is the major figure in her life. Mm-hmm. But I think we see sort of see her learning things from a variety of women. Yeah and girls mm-hmm. throughout this film mm-hmm. that she's just picking up little bits of of education from. Even just like the shoplifting scene, which yeah. is a, a great scene where an older girl I
0: think they're supposed to be the same age.
1: they're the same yeah. age. But tries to teach her how to shoplift yeah. and she gets caught and mm-hmm. stuff like that. We got that whole thing with her what cousins or whatever down south mm-hmm. that she goes to visit, which we'll we have to, to talk about. Yeah.
0: Well, in that scene where she walks into the bodega and and RuPaul is dancing with that the guy that like the shop owner.
1: Okay, I didn't, I didn't, that I didn't even you had told me RuPaul. Was you didn't, this, realize, that I didn't was RuPaul. realize that was RuPaul. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that whole scene you didn't realize no, that was
1: RuPaul I, didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I should I forgot that you had said RuPaul was in this and then yes, I, didn't, I didn't make that connection. <laughs> that was fucking
0: RuPaul, man. That may have been my first encounter with RuPaul. I'm not no. When did Love Shack come
1: out? I I let's, don't have that information in my fingertips. check fingertip the date weirdly. on that.
0: Hold on. Okay, so yeah, so Love Shack would have been first. Okay. So <laughs> I I first met her in Love Shack and then here in uh, Crooklyn. But that... That
1: is, that is a great little just it's surreal a scene, little scene. And there, there are a lot of little moments yeah. of just sort of surreality mm-hmm. throughout this movie.
0: But it's one of those moments where she really is sort of absorbing, you know, how people perform femininity and yeah. how people perform womanhood.
1: And we see her spit a little of that back out later yeah, in the film. Yeah, she
0: does. She does, like, sort of mimic yeah. what RuPaul was doing in the bodega, uh, and it's a cute little moment. And then she has sort of the influence of the sort of the larger group of girls that sort of all hang out on the stoop together of varying ages, and talking about good and bad hair. Another Spike yeah. spikely reference there.
1: I do like, just in general, the the whole film is sort of about stoop culture, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but then there is girl stoop culture, and there is boy, boy stoop, stoop culture, culture and yeah. they are very, very different. yes.
0: I love those just little sort of, it's very sort of just builds these little worlds and this sort of atmosphere of like really doing a good job of showing like how in the summer children sort of own a block. Yeah. Like it's just their world. Yeah. um, Which I really love. But then yes, the sort of one of the last influences in her life are her cousins and her uncle and aunt in Virginia, or as we would all say down south, um, Mm -hmm. because anything the Mason did just down south, yeah. um, so I love that whole section of the film, and I think part of it is because I felt it deeply when I watched it because I I was taken down south <laughs> to visit family one summer, and it was it really did feel like I had fallen off the face of the earth, yeah. and it was just totally foreign, and I was just like I don't understand how to operate down here, and everything seems weird, and you know I just want to go home and sleep in my own bed. I don't know, you know, sort of thing. So it just it resonated with me so deeply, and I think it resonates a lot with black folks who, you know, we have the Great Migration. Yeah. is what. It, so you have family in the north, and you have, you know, this anchor family in the south, and you take and that you pilgrimage back, to the south. And yeah. it's just like, what the fuck is this? It's like a different <laughs> kind of black folk. So I just love that section. You did not well, have the best uh, okay. reaction.
1: <laughs> so, because Spike does this thing... Where to to symbolize her disorientation mm-hmm. when she's in the south, mm-hmm. he starts fucking with the lenses. He
0: employs an anamorphic lens yes. to sort of elongate the vertical image.
1: Basically, it looks like you took a, a widescreen image and smushed it right. together. Mm-hmm. So it's it's elongated vertically, unnaturally. And I'm I'm just the guy you I mean I reach for the remote yeah, and, I had to say, and no, I'm like, no. okay, I need to fix the <laughs> aspect ratio on this. Because I'm that guy. When the aspect ratio is off, it drives me crazy. <laughs> and so for twenty minutes in this film, it just drove me crazy because it. it just looked wrong. <laughs>
0: That's how it's supposed to look. though. No, it's just, supposed to know, be this, like, you know, through the looking the glass. Colors, fine. Sort just of moment. Of a super saturated no, no, color thing. I think it was perfect. Whatever, fine. I thought it was perfect. I loved Don't it. go
1: all fisheye lens on me. You and know. he's
0: even said in interviews that they had to actually put up signs in the theaters because people would be going to the projectionist being like, yeah, the, the film no is shit. fucked up. Yeah.
1: <laughs> it's a bad idea. I thought it was. It's not a good idea. I thought it was a no. great stylistic
0: choice. I really did because I think. It Again, just looks like a mistake. No, this sort of idea of like looking through the eyes of a child and this sort of Alice in Wonderland moment mm-hmm. where this is a completely different world. Like the rules of the game have just changed. And I thought it was perfect. So I loved it. Okay.
1: <laughs> but otherwise that is a very good sequence. Yes. Cuz everything is just off and just her aunt is weird yeah. and there's weird i think sort of class things going on mm-hmm. there and weird sort of colorism things going on there mm-hmm. her cousin viola is very high yala, as they say okay
0: are you allowed to say that i don't think you're allowed, am to, say I that. allowed to say that i don't know okay. that you're allowed to say that
1: am i using it inaccurately
0: i mean you're using it accurately <laughs> but i don't think you're allowed to say it you sound like the bernie bot
1: <laughs>
0: we be voting for bernie <laughs> fine yeah
1: she's a very light-skinned yes black girl yes. yes
0: and so is her aunt song yes yeah so you have you know best-eyed troy with her beads and braids yeah. and sort of boyish demeanor going down to the south where her family is much more conservative very religious um, and sort of prim and proper. They don't, you know, whereas back home, Troy's dog could go sort of where he wanted. The, mm-hmm. the dog can't go really anywhere <laughs> in the home. And
1: Except for the sofa.
0: Except for the, okay. Alright, <laughs> R.I.P. Queenie. Um, but yeah, so it's this really little, interesting little sort of microcosm of like, again, this sort of this idea of like there are different kinds of black folks and, yeah. you know, where Troy and her brothers were watching, you know, Soul Train or the Knicks game. Down South, she's watching televangelists mm-hmm. on television. And she changes, right? Because Aunt Song is like, I don't know how to deal with this braid, bead shit, so I'm going to press your hair. Yeah. And, you know, throws away her pajamas and makes her put on this sort of lacy.
1: More feminine nighty. More feminine
0: nighty. And, and, and you know, during her stay there, she's dressing much more sort of, quote unquote, girlish and yeah. very dresses and prim and proper. So, yeah, it's I, I love that little section of the film. I think one of the differences with Crooklyn from other Spike Lee films is there are these sort of cartoonish moments that seem just completely ridiculous and absurd. And so you have
1: Well, that's every Spike Lee movie does do those. They? Yes. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Okay. I feel like this one feels more almost sitcommy to me than
1: I feel like all of his movies do that at some point. Hmm. Okay. I mean, that's that's actually, this is a whole other topic we could have some other day, but that's actually my problem with Malcolm X is that it has a little too much of that, those sort of cartoonish, shucking and jive moments played for comedy. Oh, before he... Especially before he, right, becomes, becomes Malcolm yeah. X. <laughs> um, huh,
0: okay. That's interesting. See, those don't strike me as cartoonish, though. Okay. In the way that these moments in Cricklin do, because it feels like it's like a TV show for laughs in those moments. So you know, Aunt Song has Queenie, who's her <laughs> dog that Just she a loves weird moment. very deeply. Yeah, and somehow he gets stuck in a pull-out couch in the
1: hide-a-bed. <laughs>
0: and she pulls it out and he just sort of pops Spoing. out like a jack in the box it's kind out. of and every and the, all the it's, like, it's during a sleepover so there's like just this group of girls sort of trying not to laugh yeah. basically at the fact that this dog has just died a terrible death inside <laughs> of a couch um but it, that sort of like almost slapsticky sort of moment and then aunt song is like oh queen my yeah. like having her little whole moment
1: well we haven't talked about the possums who are also this weird combination
0: yeah. of
1: cartoonish comic relief yes. and total nightmare <laughs>
0: Right Hand and, uh uh what's his name? Snuffy. Right Hand and Snuffy, the neighborhood glue sniffers. <laughs> who, yeah, are just sort of on the periphery of the film. But, yeah, they are basically... And they are, just, they're this, total
1: clown figures, yeah, but they're, they're also just really scary. Yeah, no, they actually. And she are. is very scared of them. She has nightmares yeah. about those guys. Yeah.
0: Well, they, when the girls are out sort of uh, jumping rope, and they come up and, like, give us money, you know, we yeah. give you... And, like, the kids all scatter because it's like... And again, that's like I feel like a point of identification because I almost feel like we all had like that scary one or two guys in the neighborhood where it's like, Oh, that dude's someday right over there and mm-hmm. you didn't as a kid you didn't necessarily know what was wrong, but you knew that they were like the bad is like Boo Radley, but really Boo Radley was bad. Right, like, right, <laughs> was <right>. like, so. <laughs> so yeah. And I mean, we at the top of the the episode, you know, I mentioned this idea of like Crooklyn and, you know, didn't have these sort of points of tension amongst the folks. But I think it does happen in this film, but it happens again in this sort of cartoonish way. So Right Hand and Snuffy are indicative of a very like serious real pathology happening in the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And like, like that shit is real drug abuse, but they are treated as sort of jokes. Yeah, And we have, you know, the constant fighting with their white neighbor Tony Eyes. Tony Eyes, yes. Which is, And he's, again, painted as a total joke and mm-hmm. a figure of mockery. But it isn't given the weight that it would be given in maybe a different film where, okay, Tony Eyes, you know, hits one of the kids. Or Tony Eyes calls the police and the kids are shot. Or, like, something, you know, super right. tragic happens. Like, Vic gets um, arrested yeah. um, for hitting him. But, yeah, so I think there are these sort of little moments where what would be sort of major concerns in another film are treated, are sort of just...
1: Well, it, but I, okay. again, I come back to the thing where it's, we're seeing it through, through the, the memories of the children. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that's how these figures would appear in their community, that they mm-hmm. would be these kind of colorful characters mm-hmm. that the kids weren't thinking about what was really going on with, like, Tony Eyes. There's some serious issues happening yeah. there of some yeah. kind, yeah. happening behind his little locked door there, <laughs> where's in his stinky apartment, right. like, there's some serious stuff going on. The kids would not think of it that way. He'd just be the smelly man that would yell at them sometimes when they dump garbage on his door step that's all he would be to them Mm -hmm. and again so I think there's that distance between what the film shows and then how we're supposed to react Mm -hmm. to it that Mm -hmm. we're we can look at that and say yeah there's some serious (laughs) stuff going on here and (laughs) and that the the possums are really kind of frightening characters I love that moment by the way you just mentioned it just visually it's it's where Vic who's their neighbor I guess
0: he's a tenant so he lives in their building yeah
1: is arrested but there's a long shot of Troy mm. walking up to the apartment and just the lights from the police car reflected
0: in reflected her on her face, yeah.
1: and you just see like just the recognition on her face that this is not an unfamiliar thing, mm-hmm. and she's almost like, "Okay, here we go again, you know and she's just slowly walking up to see really just to see who it is, mm-hmm. like to see you know okay, whose turn is it? who's getting arrested right now, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's a great shot, just just those red lights reflecting on her face,
0: right. And so we're seeing Vic get arrested. And again, he's one of those characters that, you know, talking about seeing it through a child's eyes, it's like Vic is seen as like the cool dude in the neighborhood, like all the kids yeah, love this Vic is and he's Isaiah Washington. Isaiah played by Isaiah Washington. But we see him as, oh, that's a Vietnam vet with some shit going on, mm-hmm. and he's battling some things.
1: Yeah, there's a there's a moment later in the film where their lights get cut off. Right, Carolyn and Woody have not paid the electric bills. So Woody, the has, get, not the Woody bill. has not paid the. Woody has not paid the So the lights get shut off, and then Vic says something about how his
0: condition. He right, needs light condition. for his he condition. He needs electricity.
1: Yeah. He needs yeah.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, I think there are, there are, we haven't talked about just a lot of sort of things that happen in the film. I think there are a lot of these kind of really sort of quietly powerful moments that happen in the family that, again, the film doesn't over-milk. Mm-hmm. It doesn't exploit those moments for huge emotional impact. Mm-hmm. But I think they're they're more powerful for that. I mean, we have the moment where she throws Woody out. Yeah. Because, again, he's not...
0: He's not pulling his fucking weight. He's
1: not pulling his weight, right? Yeah. Um, and there's, there's a great moment I love from Alfred Woodard. After that, where she says to Troy, "Are you all mad at me yeah. for you know basically throwing
0: their father th- throwing the their house. father out?" Yeah,
1: um, that was a really nice moment. Um, I liked the the thing with Woody's concert mm-hmm. where he's he's giving his solo piano show that Ten really people yeah. nobody nobody but yeah. family is going yeah. to, mm-hmm. and it's not making any money. And yet, it is presented as this sort of triumph for him, as Mm -hmm. this sort of important moment for him. Um, And then the oldest son. Clinton. Clinton, who to me is pretty obviously the Spike Lee character. He doesn't go to the concert. He goes to
0: the Knicks championship game.
1: game. (laughs) Yes.
0: I mean, and it's great because, you know, he has the perfect sort of kid response when his mom is like, okay, you know, you're old enough to make your own choice in this, I think you should go to your father's concert, Mm -hmm. but, you know, the choice is yours. And his response was something like, you know, why did dad's concert need to be on the same day as the Knicks game? Like, that's just a very kid response of just like...
1: Right, it's not fair.
0: Right, you're just, you know, you you are deliberately fucking my shit up and I don't know why, you know, I have to make this choice. But yeah, I mean, that that first scene that you mentioned with Carolyn, so it's after she and Woody are already having an argument about money again, yeah. so mm-hmm. she's already heated. And then she hears the television on, and, you know, she she does the mom thing with, like, is the TV on? Oh, that's and, right. And they're like you know and so she gives them a number of chances to like just turn the TV off and, and but they don't so she sort of swarms up the stairs busts the door open you know turns the TV off and the kids are really sort of antagonistic yeah. towards her particularly Clinton who yeah. I think they were watching like Again, a Knicks game it's the like fucking Knicks Spike game it's like Spike Lee right? has been
1: obsessed with the Knicks his entire life
0: and so it's this moment of like she's sort of in it by herself because Woody comes up the yeah. stairs and he's just like why don't you just let them watch TV like I don't understand right what he do. takes right? the
1: children's he side he
0: does and so she and she's trying to, like, you know, maintain some order in the house and does, again, the perfect mom thing, which is, like, I'm the one paying the damn electricity bill in this house, and if nobody else is chipping in, including you, Woody, then I get to say when the TV is turned on or turned off. And then it just becomes this, like, group physical altercation where Woody's sort of trying to take her out of the room with the kids, and he's basically dragging her down the stairs, and the kids are sort of behind her, and there's one son that's, like, on Woody's back, and it's just this huge, just ball of people.
1: And she actually gets hurt. And she
0: gets like she twists her ankle up pretty badly and that's when she says, "Okay, you need to get out of my house." And she yeah. she throws Woody out. And so it seems it is this sort of huge moment and eruption. But at the same time, it also seems like something that's probably happened in that household before. Right. But yeah, she walks away. And the next day, she's like, is everybody mad at me? Because she had to kick Woody out. And, I, and the kids have their own allegiances. And Troy's sort of trying to play both sides of it. Like, she's very much so loyal to her mother. But she also wants her dad in the house. Right. And he comes to visit the next day. <laughs>
1: yeah, and, he comes and manipulates yeah, her. Yeah, they
0: have a really little interesting moment. And, and this is sort of another time where troy almost steps into the sort of grown woman role in a creepy way in a creep where she's just like you need to take mom out and you yeah. need this is what you need to do and it's like
1: because he comes back with like roses and like,
0: candy for and the kids candy. so it's just like a, so but it's he a gives band. them
1: to troy right. he doesn't He you know he yeah. can't she he makes her do the intermediary right. between him and his wife
0: right so i think it's there's an interesting and, and again so it's just a sort of interesting example of Troy's relationship in particular with the parents, because we don't see the boys having those same relationships with the parents. Right. And this idea of, like, Troy is almost the third adult, or at least becomes sort of the adult in that in that household, in a way that we could argue she shouldn't have to be.
1: No, she absolutely shouldn't yeah. have to be. And that's, so you want to talk about the ending? Sure. Because that, to me, is a very ambiguous ending, a very emotionally ambiguous ending. Okay, like how we're supposed to feel about it.
0: How we're supposed to feel about Troy?
1: Yes. Okay. Because that we we have this is this is where she has stepped into the mother's role. Yeah. And we get a scene of her combing the little one's hair, sitting
0: in her mother's chair, sitting
1: in her mother's chair. Mm-hmm. Her own hair is now in like a full afro. Mm-hmm. It's not the be- the beads and braids that her mother had put her hair in. Right. And in fact, I don't know if this is reading too much into it, but we have seen a TV commercial mm-hmm. for Afro Sheen. Yes. That shows the modern black woman mm-hmm. with the full afro. Her beautiful that that's, crown. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's how we see Troy at the yep. end of the movie yep. in that role. And so she's she's combing out the hair of the youngest son, and then the kids call from outside. Can, I can't remember what his name is, but can he come out and yeah. play? And she's like, yes, you can go out and play. Mm. So she's completely assumed. She yeah, like says, said, be home for dinner. Yeah, right. Like you said, her childhood is over. Yeah. She is now the adult here. Mm-hmm. And then that f- the final shot we get of her is outside. It's a fantastic shot. But it's there's the stoop and all the, the people sitting on the stoop. She is not on the stoop anymore. No. She is down below in sort of the fenced in courtyard. Where
0: the parents are usually watching area, over the right. Yeah, right.
1: She's all alone. She's like basically caged in mm-hmm. in the shot. Mm-hmm. Like she looks trapped in this pen. Mm,
0: that's interesting. There where mm-hmm.
1: she's staring out at the neighborhood, but she's no longer part of that stoop culture. She's like completely separated from that. Mm-hmm. It's kind of sad, mm-hmm. actually.
0: Mm hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't even um, read it as sort of her being caged in. But, it, I mean, that is like she she's at the gate and then, you know, the buildings are at her side. Um, and her brothers are playing their games on the stoop with their friends. And her little brother has just run off down the street with his friends. Mm-hmm. And she's just sort of there with a look on her face that isn't sadness and it isn't happiness. No, it it's isn't. It's just, you know, but it does feel as though something has been lost. hmm It does feel like this moment where, you know, she has sort of made that transition right into womanhood, at least within her household.
1: But she's 10 years old. She is
0: 10 years old. But the thing is, is that's not rare. I mean, it is a fact in in many households where the girl child is the one that is looked to to be the responsible one. Like you're the one doing the cleaning. You're the one making sure that, you know, all the shit is to go. You're basically your mother's deputy, right? right? Um and when she's not there, you're in charge. You need to and if something is fucked up, it's on you. So I think we see that just in many folks' lives. And I don't I don't know that we are always I think we are aware that we do it, that we ask that of our girls, um, particularly young black girls, but we don't necessarily work to sort of untangle that, right? Like why don't we expect that same the same from our from our boys mm-hmm. and why do we sort of enable that sort of gender dynamic so that those boys grow up to be woodies. Right. Right.
1: At best.
0: At best. Um, <laughs> and it's this larger kind con- of, now we're going beyond the movie, but like there's this larger context of like a world that does not see black girls as girls. Mm-hmm. Like black girls are pretty much seen as full grown women when they walk out into the world. Right. On a number of levels, right? Having sexual agency and and also criminality, yeah, right. So why aren't we? Well, this is
1: true for black children of both. That's
0: right of you know, both genders, right. absolutely. Um, but girls have that added sort of the sexism layer mm-hmm. there with girls, right? And yeah. that sort of so there's an added
1: projection of sexuality onto them,
0: right, right? Right, which just you know opens them up to more predatory behavior that the boys just aren't experiencing. And so then why aren't we doing more to sort of wrap around these girls and keep them as girls for as long as possible? But yeah, that's a whole other thing. But yeah, that is definitely the moment where we see, you know, Troy the boy has become Troy the mom and mm. summer's over.
1: It's a downer, man. <laughs> it's kind of a downer film, dude.
0: You didn't want to it was light.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say it was light. That being said, it actually is a very funny film. It is. We haven't talked about the humor at all.
0: I love this movie. A
1: hysterically (laughs) funny film, and just the the like the scenes of the kids fighting Mm -hmm. and stuff is just so feels so real. It's so real, true to life. Yeah,
0: and I love. The scene where Nate is at the table with that same plate of black eyed peas <laughs> that
1: he has. I like refused. that because I was that kid. I was I that was kid, the kid too. That would not eat.
0: I would not eat, and my mom and was like, I "You're would gonna sit, there sit all fucking at that night. table until you finish yeah. that fucking food." No. And Nate, the genius, he is just vomited, which is how you get out of that situation. <laughs> um, I learned to like hide food, which is what yeah. I did. But yeah, so like again, that was totally relatable. Totally, my, my, uh, you know, an interaction that, that my mom and I had <laughs> many, many times you know at the dinner table Carolyn is telling Troy to stop biting her nails that's an interaction that my mom and Mm -hmm. I have had many many times and it's very funny but I was also an only child so I didn't get like a lot of
1: right you weren't you were other stuff wrestling with your siblings was not wrestling with Mm -hmm. anybody
0: no did you have one TV in your house?
1: Um. No, we had we had one color TV in the living room, and then there were a couple of black por- portable yeah. black and white. So there was TVs. no
0: fighting over the TV. It's, there
1: wasn't as much fighting over the TV okay. as you would think. Yeah, <laughs> but we found plenty of other stuff to fight about. So, did the movie hold up for you?
0: It did. I still love Cricklin. I think it's just a fun world to sort of step into for a couple hours.
1: I love just the, that opening scene. With all that, the kids playing. With all the kids yeah. playing and like rolling down the street in the refrigerator mm. box and just all that stuff was great.
0: Yeah. No, I, I just love... Spike has a gift with... There's something about a Spike Lee film set in the summer. Like, mm-hmm. he just, yep. like he can just do the summer in a way that I don't know that any other filmmaker can do. And just
1: captures those communities. And it's just amazing. The, the neighborhood.
0: And it feels so real and atmospheric. So, yeah, I mean, I still love Crooklyn. I'm still... There was a period of time where I wish my name was Troy. So, I, you know, I'm a big fan <laughs> of Troy. But, yeah, I definitely think it holds up. It You know, the bell hooks thing is is giving me sort of another lens to it and uh is encouraging me to maybe um investigate why I didn't find it a problem at least initially mm-hmm. and I sort of still don't and I don't know if it's just because oh well that's my mom. Right. But it's like okay well was it right that your mom had to be that person?
1: No, of course not. Right. But, right.
0: So I yeah, so well, that's I mean, not a just,
1: criticism of the film. No. It's a criticism of the culture.
0: Right. So so yeah, I just think this, I thought that was interesting, but um and she actually had another interesting quote. She did this interview um, where she was just talking about sort of black film overall and sort of talking about how Crooklyn had been received by white reviewers. And this is something I saw. I, I was trying to do the thing that you do where you pull all of these great quotes from different um, <laughs> uh, film critics and they were just yeah it's
1: more work than it looks like well no they were just
0: sort of pissing me off and (laughs) so I just didn't want to include them Mm -hmm. but she says you know referencing something she had heard or read from a white critic I mean Crooklyn didn't even have a plot which of course is completely bogus because the plot of Crooklyn was very obvious and very simple it was about a family where the mother is dying in the family but I can't tell you how many white reviewers wrote that it didn't have a plot yeah when what they should have said is that it didn't have a plot that interested us Mm -hmm. that white America is not interested in black Mothers that are dying. Mm. and I just thought that was such a like. So, so again, we sort of come full circle to this idea of okay, what is it about stories about black girlhood, at least in 1994? What is it about stories about black families that isn't sort of couched in these sort of larger pathologies that 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 quote unquote mainstream people can't sort of seem to wrap their heads around or or appreciate for what they are mm-hmm. as art? Okay, so does this go on your list? So, like, let's say your next wife. <laughs> and you do this experiment again.
1: Okay. Oh, is that is that what's gonna happen? Sure.
0: It'll have to be called something. I mean, I guess unenthusiastic. Are, are you
1: leaving? Are you to... are you announcing your both both I mean, your resignation and our divorce?
0: This isn't really making me any money, so
1: okay. That's I'm fair. not super tied to it. That's fair.
0: Does this go on the list of films that you would force her to watch? Um
1: I mean it probably it wouldn't be top tier mm. spike. Okay. It would be, you know, 3 or 4 films down probably mm. in my see, list of this is what happens. of Spike films. Although actually I would love to see more of Spike working in this mode. Mm. Like I would be excited to see more of this sort of autobiographical mm-hmm. stuff um versus something like well I mean I didn't like Black Klansman as much as everyone else did yeah. and Chirac, though an interesting idea was kind of a fucking train wreck. So yeah.
0: No. Okay. So I didn't, I didn't convince you that this should be top five Spike Lee film.
1: Top five might 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 crack the top five. Okay, <laughs> might crack the
0: top five. I'll take it.
1: <laughs> no, I I enjoyed it though, and I'm glad I watched it. I want to watch it a couple more times actually, because again, I do think it's it's a more complicated film than mm-hmm. it than it appears to be.
0: Mm-hmm. You're just gonna fast forward through that part on down south.
1: <laughs> I'm just gonna yeah. <laughs> I might just change the aspect ratio on my television and no, make it look normal. No, that is not the point. <laughs> All right. Any final thoughts? No. How'd you enjoy being in the big chair? I don't like it. You don't care for it?
0: No, because I like to shit on things. And so if it's something that I love, then I can't shit on it.
1: So. All right. Well, we'll, we'll try to get you back in your comfort zone Thank for you. next week. I appreciate that. That's our show. We want to thank you for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next week. Nakia, Black History Month is, sadly, over. And we can segue now into the season of the pasty white people, my people, the Irish. With St. Patrick's Day approaching, we are heading back to the old country, to County Mayo in Ireland, with John Wayne, Maureen O'Hara, and Barry Fitzgerald for John Ford's The Quiet Man from 1952.
0: So after a very disappointing Black History Month, I now have to watch a film starring a racist. Uh,
1: well, you know, I mean, that was part of my reason for picking this, is that you have never seen a John Wayne movie. Is that right?
0: Uh, that is right, yes.
1: Okay. So I thought this would be a good opportunity for us to talk about John Wayne.
0: I'm okay not talking about racists. <laughs> I'm mean, I'm actually very fine with that.
1: So we're we're going into this with a, with a certain attitude.
0: Uh, there's Preferably. really the only the one attitude. So <laughs>
1: The Quiet Man is available for rental on Amazon Prime, iTunes, YouTube, and most of the other streaming services. It is also, predictably, playing on Turner Classic Movies on St. Patrick's Day. In the meantime, you can find us on the web at unaffiliatedcritic.com, where you can listen to earlier episodes, leave us a comment, find our social media links, or make a donation to support the podcast. As always, we encourage you to suggest a film that Nakia desperately needs to see to make her life complete. Until next time, remember, true love means conning your partner into watching movies they really, really don't want to watch. Also, there's a lot of a little too much animal cruelty in this film, too. We got the dog in the couch. We got the kids
0: swinging a cat, swinging a cat by the tail. Didn't somebody throwing... throw a cat at you or something during your childhood? We
1: don't need to get it. we don't need to get well, it. I, feel like, get I mean, that. I think
0: we do because then it, apparently people throw cats, and that's no, a thing. No cats
1: were harmed which, in, the, in the making of this childhood. Which
0: I wasn't <laughs> familiar with, but then, you know, I saw Crooklyn and I met you, and apparently people throw cats, so okay. <laughs>